Are you a mom or a mom-to-be looking for tips to make wearing your mom hat a little easier? Hoping to become as smart about motherhood as you can be? Then you've found the podcast that leaves you a little smarter than before every time you listen to one of our expert guests. I'm cognitive psychologist and child development specialist, Dr. Amy Moore. Join us on a quest to becoming a brainy mom. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms, brought to you today by Learning RX Brain Training Centers. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Moore, coming to you today from a very snowy Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I am joined by my co-host, Sandy Zamalis, coming to us from across the country in Stanton, Virginia. Hi, Sandy. Hello, hello. I feel like I haven't talked with you in a really long time on air, so I'm excited to share this episode with you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. And so we're super excited to welcome back our guest, um, Maddie Lansdowne. Let me tell you a little bit about Maddie. He's a scientist, functional nutritionist, international speaker, and a health coach who specializes in weight loss and self-confidence for professional women and busy moms. Maddie hosts the podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die, where he delivers free weekly insights on health, nutrition, and human optimization, offering the latest advice on how your diet and lifestyle can directly affect your energy, focus, self-confidence, and overall well-being. Listeners, you may remember Maddie's episode from last fall, where we talked about diets and weight loss and a bunch of other uncomfortable topics related to food. Well, we've invited him back to make us uncomfortable all over again today um, by talking about a really huge health topic um, that has an impact on a lot of people, and that is insulin resistance and prediabetes and why it's a problem, why we all need to care and what we can do about it. Welcome back to our show, Maddie. Amy, thanks for such a fantastic intro. And it's so lovely to meet you too, Sandy. You, uh, well, like I said, I've been listening to you all day and prep for today. So I feel like we've been talking like old friends <laughs> for the last 12 hours. So well, let's just continue the conversation. Jump in. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, okay. <clears throat> I, I know that this might not seem like a topic that's relevant to every mom listening, but the CDC has said that one in three adults in the United States has prediabetes. One in three. That statistic blows my mind, like absolutely yeah. blows my mind. And so there's an issue happening here and we need to talk about it. And so let's talk about it. Yeah, it's a huge issue. It's one in four in Australia. Um, and they're predicting within the next 10 years, it'll be one in 10 humans on the planet. Um, mm. So, and it's like, where did this come from? Because it's literally happened in a generation. If we go back to 1990, it was very rare to find it was uh, an adult with this situation or even a kid. And now it's really normal in children as well, um, which before just a generation ago, it was unheard of in children. It was, um, you know, adult onset diabetes. Diabetes was the phrase uh, and the terminology used in diagnosing. Then it just became diabetes because so many people had it. And then it was child onset. And now it's just diabetes for everybody. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's like what has happened in this generation of food consumption, life, health, wellness that has led to this situation because it's like, it's terrifying. It's one in three. And obviously that number is just progressively moving in a direction uh, that's possibly going to be one in two. And then we've got to think of all of the other health issues that are also, in, you know, improve, uh, increasing in their, their numbers. You know, our cancer, we're almost at one in two people have cancer. So if we think one in two will have cancer and then one in three will have diabetes, there's a heap of people that have both, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and that's just two. There's loads of other things, blood pressure, cholesterol, heart attacks, atherosclerosis. And so, it's like, whoa, this is really kind of terrifying to think of what the future might hold. And so, um, and I think from my experience, one of the big causes of getting to this place with so many people suffering from this is just a, a massive misunderstanding about what diabetes is, how to treat it, and what causes it. And that's one of the, the problems with sort of Western medicine is that it often manages symptoms, which is a useful tool, um, but it also doesn't go one step further to be like, what caused this problem and how can we change that cause so that we can live 
many years into the future without the repeated problem occurring. Yeah. Okay. So I think before we talk about why we're seeing this influx, I I think we really just want to talk first about why we should care. Like, why should we be afraid of it? I know that my husband is a surgical nurse and he, he assists with amputations weekly, weekly from diabetics. Yeah. And not necessarily uncontrolled diabetes either. Right. And so when I hear these stories, when first of all, let me say I was diagnosed with prediabetes and insulin resistance right before Christmas. And that's all that started spinning in my brain were the stories that my husband has said about, oh, well, we had to remove, you know, three toes today from this 38 year old woman who wasn't even overweight. Yeah. Right. And so anyway, it, it terrified me. Um, and it should, because mm. losing a limb or losing toes isn't the only impact that insulin resistance, prediabetes and diabetes can have on your entire system. Right. I mean, there are a bunch of bad things that can happen to us. So talk about that. Yeah, so many things. And it's so when you get when we're in the category of like insulin resistance pre-diabetes, it usually takes about 13 years of that to become full-blown diabetes. So, uh what that's actually good news in my mind because it tells me that the body is actually trying over such a long period of time to mitigate and fight against what's going on. Um it's that again we're not we're not dealing with the cause. And so, in a lot of situations, we find out that we're pre something. And I worked in a cancer hospital for seven years. And we would always tell people like, you're pre-cancerous. Come back when you've got full-blown cancer. And it's like, hang on. What? Um, like, we can't do anything for you until the problem's big enough. And so, I think that's awful, an awful strategy to, to health and wellness. Uh, and so, it's the same when we're, you know, working with doctors when it t- we talk about pre-diabetes or insulin resistance. It's like, often it's just acknowledged and no guidance is given. And that's not necessarily the fault of the doctor. They have very limited education when it comes to nutrition, um, which, you know, is something I believe should be changed because we often go to our doctors for nutrition advice because poor nutrition causes so many health issues. Um, but that's the world that we live in. So, we have to go out on our own and do research and listen to podcasts like this and read books. And so, um, amputations are one of the biggest things, as you've just described, Amy, um, that happens as a result of... Um, having high blood sugar, high insulin levels for a long period of time. People go blind. That's that's a common uh, part of diabetes as well, blindness, which is, you know, it's terrifying. You know, you want to lose your sight. And and the thing is, too, is that when we get into the, the management of diabetes or even get really close to di- being fully diabetic and we might be prescribed insulin, is that if we really understand what's going on with diabetes, we also understand that prescribing insulin actually fuels the fire which is a problem. So, what happens with diabetes is that basically we get to a state where there's so much blood sh- bl- uh, sugar in the blood from our diet, from the things that we've uh, consumed throughout that day, throughout that week, um, that the amount of insulin that is released and the reason insulin is released is because it, uh, blood sugar is toxic if it's not removed fast enough, which is why these bad things happen to different organs uh, and parts of our body. And so, the insulin comes out and it's kind of like the chaperone. It comes out and says, oh, hey, hey, sugar, we need to go into the cells because you're actually really dangerous out here. It's kind of like the security guard or the bouncer at the, you know, the bar and there's like a really crazy drunk guy that's outside being dangerous. And he's like, we need to come in here to keep you safe, right? So, that's basically what insulin is doing. It's taking the sugar out of the blood because it's toxic to the body if it's there too long and putting it into the cells. And what happens when we get pre-diabetic and insulin resistant is there's already too much in the cell. So, there's already too many drunk guys in the bar. We can't fit any more in. Um, and so, what the what the pancreas does in order to try and mitigate that is it just hires more bounces. It just increases the amount of insulin that's then in the blood. So, if you think about if we're putting more insulin in via injections, we're not actually solving the blood sugar problem. We're just meaning we're pushing more blood sugar into the cells. And if you think about what blood sugar into the cells is, that's fat storage. And so, there's a strong relationship with taking insulin and becoming obese. 
right? There's a very strong relationship between those two things. It's like you might not even be overweight at all, go on insulin, five, 10 years later, you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 pounds bigger. And that's because you're not actually dealing with the sugar supply, which is the issue that caused the high insulin to begin with. And so, we just get to a place where the pancreas gets burnt out. It's like, whoa, we've just been trying to put so much sugar into the into all of the cells for so long. We keep going up and up and up and up. Those systems just burn out. And so, the toxic sugar ends up being damaging to your eyes, to your limbs, to the blood supply, to the arteries, which then leads to all of the other problems, which is why amputations happen because this toxic blood sits in the limbs for so long that it starts damaging all the capillaries and the arteries. And then the, the, um, like the toes or the fingers or the hands start to rot. Um, and it's just like this awful cascade of events. So, it, once we start understanding the relationship between our diet, sugar and insulin, we can start understanding that like, oh, okay. So, if I reduce the sugar in my diet, my pancreas will reduce the amount of insulin that it produces and therefore, we'll be able to start stop putting stuff in storage and be less toxic. And we can slowly, slowly, slowly start to reverse this cycle. Um, it'll take a few years, but we can, we can actually reverse it. Yeah, I heard you uh, use an analogy um, when you were talking about insulin resistance about instead of the bar and the bouncer, you talked about like the Japanese train and having to, Yes. can you tell that? Because I just, <laughs> I was so amused by that, but it was, it really helped me understand. Yeah. So, anybody that's seen uh, like a video or been to Japan or seen a video of the people getting on trains, they literally hire people to stand on the platform and push as many people into the trains as they could possibly fit. And so, it's the same idea Yeah, with our cells. It's like we're just trying to stuff as much sugar into the cell as possible. And that insulin is effectively the person that's been hired to stand on the platform and say, nope, we can fit another 10 people in here. Watch this. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I was sharing with Amy before we started that um, this is such an interesting topic for me because um, my dad um, passed away from kidney-related illness. So, his kidneys failed and it was the whole train wreck that you described um, a minute ago. And then my niece was diagnosed with type 1 and I have an uncle who had diabetes and it's kind of rampant in my family. So we talk about this topic all the time. Um, but with that said, you know, when my dad got sick, that was a surprise to us because he was never diagnosed with diabetes. So what demographic is the most impacted by insulin resistance? Because sometimes it can sneak up on you. Yeah, that's a really good question because I remember as a teenager, I was really into sport and and doing different things. And so, I remember distinctly the first marathon runner that was diagnosed publicly and it was on the news and it was like, what? It was the first realization that somebody that wasn't overweight and that was actually deemed as, you know, super healthy uh, was actually diagnosed. And so, that as, as we sort of touched on briefly, it's not necessarily proportional to body weight or body image. We can actually have you know, people that are visibly skinny that are that are diagnosed with diabetes. And so, the demographic, well, we're getting to a point where all demographics are vulnerable to this because fundamentally, it's an access to food uh, issue, which is most cheap food is, and therefore, lower socioeconomic people are probably more susceptible. However, the privilege and abundance that maybe all of us here have ex accessibility to equally is full of sugar and unhelpful carbohydrates and that type of thing. So, it's pretty much across the board with a bit of a leaning to the lower socio de demographics because uh, the other thing about unhelpful foods that are high in sugar, high in refined grains and carbohydrates is that they're exceptionally cheap. And so, when people go to the supermarket, obviously, they're trying to make you know, get as much bang for their buck when they spend. And so, all the things that go into the, the shopping cart are uh, Everything's in a bag, a box, or a can. It's heavily processed. It's often had the protein removed uh, and all of this, uh, these synthetic chemicals and, and sugars added into it for flavor and experience and craving. And there's a whole other layer of the conversation where companies put people's heads in MRI machines to study their addiction response to their food so they can make their foods more addictive. And so, we're just on this cycle of being addicted to foods that are not nutritionally fulfilling, but we crave more of, which 
are just all sugar, fills the blood up with sugar. We eat too often because we're not getting enough protein and it's just this cycle. And so, uh, with and especially we're moving towards one in three people having it, like it's it's across the board, like everyone, whether you have abundant access to food and you can choose whatever you like, still plenty of sugar and carbohydrates that are unhelpful. And if you're restricted by finance, then you're almost restricted to an exclusive carbohydrate diet, unfortunately. Yeah, so interesting um, that um, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, is Mm -hmm. frequently associated with insulin resistance. And I know in my 30s, I had PCOS. I was diagnosed with with insulin resistance at the same time and handed my prescription for metformin or glucophage. Um, I was given zero education from my physician at the time about what that meant just here's your prescription, right? And so why do we see those two associated? And what do we need to do instead of just taking our prescription for metformin to the pharmacy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not often that people draw those um, parallels because the way that I describe PCOS is literally diabetes of the ovaries. So, diabetes is toxic because it's sugar in the blood and the blood is everywhere. Literally, it's one of the diseases that affects every single organ, limb, every layer of your entire being that the blood goes toxic blood sugar can damage. And so, it's exactly the same for ovaries. So, PCOS is often an early sign of like, well, we've got diabetes in this area of the body. It's possible that in the future, it's going to expand if we don't make any changes. And so, um, and I've actually had, I've worked with a number of women that we've been able to take them completely off metformin, um, focusing on what would otherwise be classified as maybe a a diabetic diet and trying to reverse that. So, um, So, every organ in the body can be negatively affected you can have cirrhosis of the liver. You can have, you know, the, the kidneys fall apart because they, uh, the filtering they do of the sugar get those systems just get so burnt out because they're doing so much work all of the time and they never have a break. Uh, which is why I guess uh, intermittent fasting is a useful tool for many people as well to give some of their organs that are so burnt out, like the pancreas and the kidneys, a bit of a breather to recover and be like, all right, we've actually got a few hours off here. We can sort of focus on fixing ourselves before we go back to whatever's coming in the next meal. So, um, so it's the same with PCOS. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, essentially diabetes of the ovaries. Fascinating. I have never heard it described like that, but it makes so much sense because it was kind of a chicken or the egg scenario in my mind. Does, does the PCOS cause the insulin resistance or is it the other way around? And so, what I'm hearing you say is the, I mean, the blood sugar issue is creating yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so going back to your analogy, and you can use either the the bouncer in the bar or the train analogy, um, <laughs> whichever one you like best. Um, talk to us a little bit about um what happens when we're eating constantly and and why reducing the number of times we eat during the day can actually be beneficial or intermittent fasting, or just make that connection for us in that visual. Yeah, sure. So, basically, when we're eating all of the time, our... So, if we think about our gut, and I refer to it as gums to bum, so that whole system of gums to bum, if that's switched on all of the time, that's a significant portion of your body, like right? That's working, that's having to do work, that's requiring blood supply, enzymes, acids, all of the resources that you've got in your body, which and a, and a really clear indication of your body doing that is if you think about when you finish Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner and you basically want to pass out, it's because your gastrointestinal system is doing all of the work on this massive amount of food. Now, if we break that up into a normal day, we're, we're essentially using that same amount of energy, but across the entire day. Because because we're eating and actually a study, it's 2021 study now, but it was, they discovered that in America, in this study, that the average American was eating six to 11 times a day. Um, and so, when we're eating that often, we're not actually switching off this massive system that requires so many resources in order for us to be able to digest the food, pull the nutrition out of it um, and do all the things that our gut is meant to do. And so, when we've got that system sucking our resources, we have brain fog, we can't focus on things. 
things. It's it's more difficult to do activities and movement and go to the gym and yoga and that kind of thing. It's really difficult to manage our emotions uh, and the way we react or the way that we might navigate difficult situations or stress because just simply our system is using the resources elsewhere. Um, and so, what we need to do in an ideal world, um, and ideally we're in an ideal world because we're in the Western world, um, and so what we need to do is start reducing the amount of times that we eat. So we we all went through that chapter of like the 80s and 90s where it was eat six six times a day to keep your metabolism up, and so we know now that that is uh, that was that uh, that advice was built on the idea of maintaining somebody's metabolism because the belief was if you let your metabolism drop, that you wouldn't keep it up which in theory is a good theory. But unfortunately, we've seen the world over the last generation become sicker, more obese, more diabetes, more cancer. And so, we know now from that that that's not really great advice. And so, what we need to do is go back to maybe what we were doing in like the 50s and before that. And if you ever see a photo of people on the beach or in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, it's really difficult to find a photo of a group of people and there's an overweight person. And so, they're often, it's often when we look at our photos of our parents back in the day or our grandparents, we're like, whoa, you chiseled, grandpa. Like, you look really good. And for us in this generation, that's not going to be a thing because we have so much food going into our bodies all of the time. Um, And so, from there, we need to start sort of scaling back our meals. But the thing is, if you just scale back at your meals, your meal frequency without changing the contents of the meal, you're going to fall back into the same patterns because currently those meals are causing cravings and leading to you wanting the next meal. So, when, when we... We eat the first time of the day. Basically, our blood sugar goes up because we've just introduced sugar to the body. Uh, the insulin comes out and it puts it in storage. From there, it should go back down to baseline. And one of the interesting things about the advice that we're given uh, in the context of having diabetes or managing our blood sugar is it's like carry lollies or chocolates with you. As soon as you feel a little bit faint or a little bit wobbly, have, have a chocolate or have a jelly bean and we'll get the insulin and blood sugar back up. In my mind, we're actually trying to default to the wrong side of the threshold where we need to de- we need to get used to actually getting on the other side of feeling faint and feeling those wobbles. And yes, that does mean that there's going to be a couple of weeks of readjustment and managing that transition. But we actually want to get used to the other end of the spectrum, which is that my blood sugar is low and that's a good thing because insulin is low and that's a good thing. And so, we only want those spikes to happen when we've actually got food in the system. And so, we, we want to reduce the amount of times that we do that, not necessarily to zero. We don't necessarily want to water fast for the rest of our life because that's got a 100% death rate. So, let's not do that. Um, <laughs> but but we need to start putting space in between these. And 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 as, as well, it's important to acknowledge that trying to put space in the beginning, don't just rip out all, your, all of your snacks overnight because in three or four days, you'll be like, oh my God, my cravings are like, I'm so hungry. I miss all of this food. We need to do a thing I call one tweak a week, which is we need to make one small change and then we need the body to adapt to that. And we need another small change and the body to adapt to that. And sure, it's not sexy and amazing on, on a clickbaity sales title, but we have to do it over a long period of time so that you don't feel faint, so that you're not overwhelmed, so that you don't dive headfirst into a pizza because you have had all of the good stuff ripped out of your life. Like, we need to do it really slowly over time so we can reverse this because if you remember, I said it takes 13 years for us to develop that full diabetes diagnosis anyway. So, we need to walk- we've walked up the problem mountain and we're at the top and it took 13 years to walk up. So, we actually need to walk down down slowly rather than jump off the cliff. So my niece is type one. So like we're constantly checking hypo versus hyperglycemic mm-hmm. for her. And um, that's a whole different ball game from what you're describing where you yes. really don't want to be low. Lows are bad too um, for, for people with type one. So I wanted to make sure we put that out in the podcast. Yes. Thank but, you. But when we're talking type two or pre-diabetic, when we still have control over those highs and lows. I know for me, um, you know, I always thought like we're supposed to keep it even, right? Like <laughs> you're trying to avoid the big spikes up, way yeah. up, way down. Um, but we can keep it even, which I think in my head was why you're supposed to eat like every two hours or something like, so you don't, you are avoiding those spikes. So what does it look like um, from what you're describing when you're trying to retrain your system into how to eat and when to eat and how often, um, what does that look like um, for your clients or what do you advise? 
Yeah. Thanks so much for clarifying. This whole conversation is definitely about type 2 diabetes mellitus for sure. Type 1 is very different, very different. Um, So, basically what I would start for most people is that everyone I've ever worked with, diabetes or not, um, overweight or not, there seems to be a common thing across the Western world, which is that there's a deficiency in protein. And this comes from simply uh, the original food pyramid in 1977, with the biggest suggestion on there was grains, rices, cereals. And so, we've gone, you know, almost two generations of people that have been advised to focus on carbohydrate-rich foods. And there's a a load of reasons for that as to why that came to be. There's another rabbit hole, Maddie Ruins Everything episode. Um, (laughs) But but basically, we're, we're at a place now where you know, cereal for breakfast is normal. A muffin and coffee for morning tea is normal. A sandwich or a focaccia or a roll for lunch is normal. Then everybody has their 3 p.m. slump. And that's created because of all the decisions we just made. Uh, and so, we have the slump. And so, we go to the cafe. We might get a cake or a croissant or, or something. Um, and then we go home. We swing on the door of the fridge before dinner, as soon as we walk in the door. Uh, and so, we've got all of these hits, and if you if you listen to all the foods I mentioned, they're all refined carbohydrates. Um, and sure, there might be some protein in the middle, but um, if we think from a business perspective, that it actually costs 10 times the amount to farm protein, and therefore for businesses uh, that sell food, it also costs more for them to acquire protein. So, from a business perspective, it makes sense that we have a reduction in protein in a lot of the things that we're selling, which you could also argue the big plant-based movement is actually like a, we don't have to sell you know farm grown protein anymore because it's too expensive anyway another day um so the but the point is here that we're just so used to consuming six times a day at least carbohydrate rich foods and so the blood sugar and insulin is going up and down up and down up and down to the point it just stays stuck which is when we've got diabetes right we're just stuck at the top uh, and when we're but the other thing is when we've got high insulin and if we haven't eaten recently, it causes cravings because the insulin needs a job to do. It's like, hey, I'm here to get rid of the blood sugar, but you haven't eaten for two hours. Like we, And that, that literally drives cravings. Um, so, what we need to do is we need to look at protein in the diet. And so, it's important to know, and this is like, this will change people's diets. What you put in first will be what you crave for the rest of the day. And so, the first thing that you put in your mouth in the morning is where you need to start. It's before the coffee, before everything. Um, it's like we need to put protein in first. And yeah, I know it's weird. Steak for breakfast is very strange. Um, but actually, that that's sounds what, delicious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do it all the time. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But we need to put protein in first and not protein powders like we need, like which are useful and got their utility. But if we're really trying to, we're talking about people that have got diabetes or pre-diabetes or really trying to reverse the situation, we want to put real, whole, real food, protein sources in steak, chicken, you know, that kind of thing in the morning as the first thing or whenever you break the fast. What about eggs? I know eggs has been yeah. like, you know, the, uh, you know <laughs> the one ingredient that has hit every single bad diet of either it's terrible because it's too high in cholesterol or it's great. Um, are, is uh, eggs a good source of protein? Um, yeah, I think they're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think eggs are totally fantastic. And yeah, they've gone terrible, great, terrible, great, terrible, great. And th- we could have another podcast talking about cholesterol because I think that's also like diabetes being miscategorized. I often describe cholesterol as blaming the firefighters for being at the fire. Um, cholesterol like is 80 to 90% of your cholesterol is created by the liver. If you pull it out of the diet, the liver will upregulate it. If you add heaps into the diet, your liver will downregulate it. So, I've watched my grandmother for my entire life talk about cholesterol and, and pick food off the table and be like, I can't have this. I've got to have this. And she's never solved her cholesterol problem ever. Her numbers have never changed despite taking all the statins. And it's important to note too, statins are the highest grossing drug of all time. They've made a trillion dollars, a trillion. Um, so, yeah, don't no need to worry about cholesterol eating steak for breakfast, in my personal opinion. <laughs> now, I would love to have you back to talk about cholesterol because we're uh, <clears throat> my husband and I are big fans of Malcolm Kendrick and the Great Cholesterol Con and Peter Atia, and yeah, we're we're on board there with not uh, being afraid of a little cholesterol. Um, yes, and that there are other risk factors that we have to look at. Um, when well, the brain assessing. needs cholesterol, right? Absolutely. I mean, like, Every cell in your body your needs cholesterol. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So, I want to go back just a little bit and clarify um, what is happening 
Um, all right. So like, let's use your train analogy of you're stuffing all the blood sugar into the cells. The insulin guy is, that's his job to stuff all the blood sugar into the cells. And so if we wait to eat, that gives our body time um, for the insulin to get rid of some of the glucose in the cells, right? Yeah. But if we keep eating, then it doesn't have time to do that, right? So then it just backs up. It just makes the line on on the train platform longer. Yes, and the line on the train platform becomes toxic. Ah, right. Because those customers that didn't get on the train, they get angry, they start yelling, they start just ruining the joint. Uh, And that's basically what happens with uh, blood sugar being toxic, which is why it can put people into comas and lead to blindness and all of these things because it can't stay in the blood for long. So it has to be in the cells before it can be eradicated from the body. It can't just float around freely. Yeah, the glucose should be put into the cells in order to be used as energy, in order to be stored as fat, because like having stored body fat is not a bad thing. It's just about the amount of it. Um, So, yeah, we obviously want to eat these things for energy, but we also get energy from fats and from protein and different things. It's it's hard to get energy from protein, but we can still do it. Um, And the body and the liver can actually make energy and turn fat back into sugar in situations where it needs it as well, which is what happens when we are fasting. Um, so, even when the, the platform is totally empty, we can actually pull some some people out of the, the trains if we need to, which is our fat stores. So, it's it's accessible in the other direction too, If but only if we've got allowed enough space between meals. And I guess the time that most people would do that is when they're asleep, uh, that that process would start happening. We'd start reducing the pressure on the cell. The insulin levels could go down. The pancreas could actually stop releasing insulin for a change because it's been doing it for so many years. And that's what we want. We want these fluctuations of on and off and, and our body to be able to go back and forth because that it's kind of like a, if you think about it as a lever or a lever, it's like get that lever being rusted on one side and not it's, it's meant to come back, but we can't pull it back because it's been stuck in insulin release for constant blood sugar supply through the diet, eating 10 times a day for 20 years, that it's just stuck. And so, it takes a little bit to loosen it and to unrust it and slowly pull it back the other way. And then we should be doing that between our meals. So, talk to us about keto and your thoughts on on the keto diet for kind of reversing insulin resistance and prediabetes or trying to hold it at bay. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I think we're at a point in the nutrition world and the Instagram world where keto, the word keto has been hijacked by marketers everywhere. I'm in a very healthy city. Melbourne's got lots of health stores and now everything's keto-friendly. It's really not. It's really not. It's just the market. Like, keto cookies are not a good idea. (laughs) They're just cookies. Like, and that's okay. It's okay to eat cookies. But, you know, I just think the word keto has been totally hijacked. But if we talk about it in its clinical nutrition setting, um, I think it's a really good tool for people that need a rapid response. It's a very good therapeutic tool in a cancer setting, also a diabetes setting and a a number of other uh, diagnostic situations. But it's really good because we basically... We, we, re- we reverse that situation of the blood sugar rapidly. However, it does mean that there's a thing called the keto flu. And that is all of the the wobbles and the fainting and all of that stuff happens really full on and it doesn't feel good. Uh, so, I, I sort of I'm, I lean more towards the generally low carb, but progressively over time. So, we can kind of slowly walk into that space. However, I've had, you know, cancer patients that are like, I really need to do something today because I'm on my third relapse and like I've decided that nutrition might be helpful. And so, you know, some extreme situations require rapid ketosis. Um, but I think it's a good good diet clinically. It shouldn't be done forever. Uh, I think the reality is that we live in a world where carbohydrates are accessible and unless you're one of those evil wizards that can never eat a carbohydrate again, um, then you're a human. And so, it's we've got to factor in your body's ability to do that because going too long without uh, uh, consuming carbohydrates can lead to a thing called carbohydrate resistance. And you have literally one piece of bread and you want to take a nap for three days because your body is like, we've it's effectively that lever, we've rusted it in the other direction. Um, so, yeah, I think 
a healthy person or when we progress towards health, we should be, it's called metabolic flexibility. We go between burning fat, burning sugar, burning fat, burning sugar, and we just go back and forth. Um, and, and intermittent fasting allows us to do that. So, I think keto is good. The general aim should be low carb, I believe, especially for women. There's a lot of good research and a lot of books that have been written about the benefit hormonally speaking, and especially the transition through perimenopause with carbohydrates. So, for the women that I work with, it might technically be like maybe we start with a keto breakfast, but dinner always includes some carbohydrates. Like we all every single day, because it's just so important to nurture those hormones and the stress response. And most people have been living long, stressful lives with kids and jobs and that kind of thing. So there's it's a multi-dimensional kind of answer, I guess, to you know each individual. But as a standalone, the keto is a good place to keto is a good place to start. But again, I'm always thinking about the psychology of it because you can jump into keto keto and have a fantastic weight loss diabetic reversal situation. But if you haven't dealt with your behaviors and your emotions that dry, that originally drove the snacking habit that you had in the beginning, then it'll just be another yo-yo diet you go on. I've spoken to so many people and worked with so many people that have jumped into my emotional eating program because they're like, I know how to do it. I've lost the same amount of weight 15 times over the last 30 years, right? And so, we also have to manage the psychology. So, jumping in, that's why I'm big on one tweak a week because if we jump jump in rapidly. Yeah, we'll feel great for two weeks, but there'll be all of these parts of ourselves emotionally and psychologically that are like, I don't feel safe. This is strange. Where's the chocolate? The chocolate gave me comfort, whatever the story is, you know? And so, I think it's, yeah, a good practitioner is managing the psychology of the situation and the diet. Absolutely. So, for those people who are... um, all or nothing black and white thinkers and are and are ready to jump in um in order to to have that metabolic flexibility that you were talking about let's say you want to go all in with keto you can push through that keto flu for that week um mm-hmm. how long would you recommend staying on keto before you take a break and then how long should that break be before you go back on keto yeah so uh- as a really general answer, so everyone's metabolism and body and life is different. And so, I've worked with people where we can do it six days a week and then we have one day where it's like, you know, we go out for brunch and have carbohydrates kind of thing. I've worked with people that can do it for three months before they need to throw a bit of a curveball into the mix. So, it really is up to the individual. Um, I, I mean, generally, I think one to two, three months is is pretty good. Um, but it's really important that we cycle back and, and include, uh, you know, carbohydrates again. But once we're there and once we're starting to really see the results we want, we want to move back to basically a daily, a daily situation of, you know, maybe you wake up, you're in a fasted state. So, naturally, you'll be a bit more ketotic in the morning, which is how we should all wake up, assuming that we don't have our um, body full of sugar from the night before. Uh, And then so, we all should wake up into ketosis. And then if we eat protein and fat or even just protein for breakfast, we should we should stay in ketosis for most of the day. Uh, and then when we come to dinner time, we pick carbohydrates that we know work for our body, work for our digestion, and don't totally knock us out. Um, I notice uh, from working with people over the last few years that sweet potato is often a trigger food. So, when we include it in dinner, it's delicious and amazing and it's a vegetable, but it's one of the foods that actually triggers then the hunt for chocolate or the hunt for ice cream. So, we have to identify those carbohydrates in our diet. So, I think, yeah, initially... We need to figure out for you what works. It might be up to three months. It might be one month. It might be a couple of weeks before we need to cycle back. The other thing to remember is that the human body is an adaptation machine, which is amazing because otherwise we'd all be 1 billion kilograms uh, because we would never have adapted to the diet that we're on. Um, so, the same thing happens in the other direction is that when we go between diets, we adapt to the diet. And that's what everybody knows as the plateau, the really frustrating weight loss plateau. And so, that's actually your body's intelligence trying to keep the reserves here for some devastating famine that's coming. So, the same thing's going to happen on keto. You're going to have a plateau, your body will adapt to it. So, it's the same reason we need to cycle back and forth. And the more often we can cycle back and forth, generally speaking, the more we'll keep the adaptation mechanism guessing and not adapting. So, we'll continue to sort of find the benefits. The unsexy thing about that is that there's some weight loss and there's a little bit of weight gain. There's a bit of weight loss, there's a little, but we progressively move down over time. I'm one of those people where like, I'll forget to eat, right? (laughs) That which, you know, is not necessarily fasting when you (laughs) forget to eat. (laughs) It it wasn't intentional, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also... You can count it, Sandy, you can count it. 
I fasted for the last 12 hours. <laughs> I And so the funny part to me, like I've never been able to wrap my brain around um, intermittent fasting because I like you just described it. That's me. Like when I do that, I feel like I end up gaining weight. It's like my body's like, hold up. She's starving. <laughs> Got to hold on <laughs> to every morsel. <laughs> um, and I do better um, when I'm doing something like a paleo or a keto um, where, but I'm eating, you know, in normal, you know, healthy increments um, throughout the day without any big, long pause. Um do you have any recommendations for that? I know that's all in my head about the hold on, but that's what it feels no, like to me. <laughs> no, no, it's not in your head at all. There's definitely some people that benefit from maintaining. So I find that most people, when we start looking at what their eating schedule looks like, they're approximately 12-12. And what that means is that they've got about 12 hours of fasting and they have their first coffee and breakfast at approximately 7 a.m. They have dinner at 7 p.m. and it's approximately 12-12. And so some people... Like if we if we try and do sixteen eight say so sixteen hours of fasting, that might just throw them out completely. And so one of the best things that we can do for people just like you, Sandy, is maintain what works for you. But it's really about the nutrition quality and then removing the snacks in between. So there's only three reasons that we should ever need a snack. One, we, our diet's deficient in protein, and the other two, which are kind of the same, is that we're emotionally eating or we're, we've got a sugar addiction. And so yeah, which is like the reason that diabetes exists basically. Um, and so, so we have to, yeah, still, still do the 12, 12 or whatever it is for you. If that feels like it holds good structure and health and wellness and, and benefits in your life. And then it's just about focusing on how can I get the most out of this meal? What do I need to put into it? Uh, and where are the other meals or um, snacks in my day that I can pull out? Cause we can have little dips into that fasting window um, in between, which is technically what we should do between breakfast and lunch and lunch and dinner. It should be a dip into that fasted state, which instead of a dip into like overwhelming hunger, which is something that we've often programmed into ourselves by the food choices we've made do you recommend Wait, you that yeah go you ahead said no snacks is that what i heard you say no snacks yeah so but you want to start with, with removing one at a time so um and, and that's the, the idea is that we're trying to get as much of the fasting benefit as we can without moving the, the structure that an individual finds beneficial so instead of eating like four or five or six times a day. It's like, no, we're going to commit to three times a day or for some people two. I eat, I eat pretty much two times a day um, and there's just nothing in between. And so, if we get the nutrition right and we're also um, able to manage any emotions that come up that would drive sugar cravings, then it's actually no problem. We get all the benefits from the, the fasting and actually, as the deeper we get into the fasting, the more focused we are, the more efficient. Um, but this is, this is obviously after, you know, we've dealt with all of the stuff in the beginning. This is sort of getting into that more optimal state at the other end of the, the process. So, Amy but and I are coffee addicts. <laughs> so my question was to go back to the breakfast question that you mm -hmm. has set up, right? Where you're like, have your coffee and your morning breakfast. Um, my Achilles heel is that I'll have my coffee alone. And then that can, you know, without any kind of protein at all. And then that just throws me off for, and then I'm not hungry because I just had, you know, two yeah. cups of coffee. What Sandy um, isn't saying is that she sweetens her coffee. I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I just put heavy cream in my coffee so that it kind of mimics that fasting state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that I, I think about it is this. You here, Sandy. I'm sorry. That things. was terrible. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I own it. It's normal. It's normal, right? That's why we're talking about it is that we've got to figure out what's going on here, right? So for well, me- And I, I will say before you, I, just to finish, my husband does the same thing and he does just black coffee and he'll do the same thing. Like it'll just override his metabolism. He won't eat until mm -hmm. way later. Um, But I can't think that that's good. Sorry, Manny, go for it. Yeah, well, I mean- First and foremost, it's like what is good and it's going to look different for everybody, right? And and that's the kind of frustrating thing. It's like when everybody listening wants a definitive answer and then Maddie's like, well, it depends on you and like, and it's like, oh, that, that wasn't the answer I wanted. Um, and the reality is that if we're going to get your health and wellness right and you're in a situation that's problematic, you really want a customized approach because there's some bad stuff that possibly eventuates if we don't get that right. Um, so, but so good looks different for everybody, but there's also in the fasting world, there's um, 
clean and dirty fasting. Uh, and so, dirty fasting is the idea that we don't raise our blood sugar. So, we still put foods in. There might be zero calorie or whatever. The calorie number is irrelevant. If, if you're putting nutrition into your body, it has an impact. It doesn't matter how many calories are in it. So, if you're putting coffee in and it's a zero calorie coffee or a zero calorie drink, it doesn't matter. Your gut has to switch on and it has to transfer that nutrient from the gut into the blood. Um, so, that's we're, we're ending the fast there. But it's called a dirty fast because the we're basically not spiking insulin so that's the dirty fast and you can still classify yourself as as fasting i'm more of a, a purist because i think there are so many more benefits than just managing our blood sugar however i think a dirty fast is a good transition because we can get a lot of gut health and immune benefits and brain health benefits from actually keeping ourselves in a properly fasted state because as soon as we put that zero calorie drink in the, the fast is technically over. The, the system has switched on. We've got to do some work or we've taken some supplements or something or medications. The gut has to switch on. So, all the, all the benefits that we're, we were getting in our gastrointestinal tract uh, have been stopped for now. Um, so, I, I'm a very much like a, we want a, a clean fast to get all the body benefits, but the dirty fast is a good transition in between. And so, the other thing too is that often what I find is reverse dieting is needed. And what I mean by that is that people have adapted their life over many years to drinking the coffee in the morning. And so, as soon as we do add in any nutrition then th th that they need, then they start gaining weight. And they're like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, I'm going back to just drinking a coffee. They wouldn't have talked to me in the beginning if just drinking the coffee produced the body that they were happy with, right? So, we actually need to do some uncomfortable reverse dieting, which is basically training the body back into a normal frequency of nutrition before we can go back the other way. Um, a lot of bodybuilders do reverse dieting, but also um, if you're the kind of person that has been smashing the gym, eating salads that are predominantly spinach leaves and not much else, and you're like, why aren't I losing weight? you've adapted your current body to a really limited nutrition supply. And so, then when, whenever you go back to normal, add, add some other meals in, you're gaining weight. And how frustrating because you're doing all of this to lose weight. So, we have to reverse diet that person in order to train their body to trust the nutrition supply, to not grab onto every molecule that comes into their body desperately and put it into storage before we can actually then go back in the other direction. And it's a commitment over time. But again, these problems weren't created overnight. So, we actually have to think, well, it took me 20 years to get here. It's probably at least going to take me one to walk down the other side of the mountain. Yeah. Okay. Sandy, we need to take a break, let you read a word from our sponsor. And then when we come back, I can't believe we've already been talking almost an hour. Um, <clears throat> we need to let Maddie tell our listeners how they can find him, how they can work with him, all of that good stuff when we come back. Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the result of poor curriculum or instruction. They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one -on -one brain training and structured literacy programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. The Learning RX team would like to help get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future. Join the growing list of more than 100,000 children and adults trained at Learning RX. Give LearningRx a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit LearningRx.com. That's LearningRx.com. And we are back talking to the amazing Maddie Lansdowne about insulin resistance and prediabetes and a little bit of intermittent fasting and keto and all the stuff that everybody's uncomfortable hearing um, but needs to know. Maddie, talk to us about how our listeners can find more of you. Yeah, sure. So, I also have a podcast and Amy's been on the podcast with a fantastic episode. It's called How to Not Get Sick and Die. We're very to the point. Um, so, come and hang out there. We try and make all of the health and wellness things fun and laughable um, and entertaining. Uh, also, my website, maddielansdown.com. 
And I also have a Facebook group called the Healthy Mums Collective. Uh, so, if you're a mum and you're wanting to manage your emotional eating or lose weight or gut health or any of that kind of stuff or anything we've been talking about today, we've had lots of diabetics through, uh, come and join the group and answer the questions and let's hang out. And then do you do one-on-one coaching too? Yeah, yeah. So, I've got group programs and one-on-one programs. So, uh, yeah, feel free to to come through any of those mediums and, and chat with me. And if you need support and help or um, di- you've got diabetes and you want to know what to do, like, yeah, feel free to reach out. And where can uh, we find you on social media? Well, I just started another Instagram. So, I'm maddie.lansdowne and there's no posts there. And I think I've got three followers and one of them's my mum. So... That's pretty exciting. So, I did have an Instagram account that got deplatformed, another rabbit hole for another another day, but feel free to follow me there. Um, and aside from that, yeah, just the Facebook group, Healthy Mums Collective. All right. Fantastic. Is there anything that you want to leave us with that you haven't gotten to say today? Oh, well, I've got 250 podcast episodes, so I have a lot to say, but... Um, just well just i'm just grateful for this opportunity i appreciate your time sandy and amy and i love hanging out and it's you know it just feels like we're kind of old friends which is nice and so yeah I, i'm grateful to be here and everybody that's listening thanks for hanging out and putting up with me <laughs> oh it's been great i'm so excited that you came back and talked to us about something that was personal to both of us and um you know we like to we like to talk about topics that will reach the most amount of people who need to hear it. But then we also want people to know that we're in the trenches too, right? Like we're in there. We understand this plight, you know, we're struggling with this kind of stuff too. Um, and so it makes it that much sweeter, right. To, to bring yeah. it to, to bring it to our listeners. I think it's so look, I think it's easy for people to that listen to podcasts and look at you know people that are doing this kind of work as you know these godlike creatures and it's like no we're all just humans having human experiences and we struggle too and we've got challenges as well so uh, it's good to be able to connect with people and say hey we're humans you're humans like let's just figure this out together absolutely and we didn't we didn't talk about your history on this episode because you, you talked about it in our last episode but I mean you struggled too right like you came into this entire field of nutrition because you wanted to get healthy yourself right and so yeah. you get it totally totally yeah it was a combination of my own stuff with emotional eating and trauma and that kind of thing but also working in the cancer hospital and seeing also diabetic patients alzheimer's patients all these patients just being managed not being pointed in the direction of fixing the cause which is yeah it was the real motivator for the name of the podcast it's like actually how to not get sick and die is pretty easy come and listen to my podcast <laughs> Well, we invited you on this podcast because I loved the name of your podcast. So I'm like, I got to meet this guy. (laughs) And look where we are today. So here we are. (laughs) Absolutely. So listeners, thank you so much for being with us today. If you liked our show, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you would like to be on our show, you can visit us at our new website, thebrainymoms.com. You can find us on every social media channel at the ba- at the Brainy Moms. So uh, go there and follow us wherever that is. Also, you can find Sandy on TikTok. At, she is the brain trainer lady, and she has an amazing following with lots of cool videos so that you can learn how to uh, get help for struggling cognition, learning um, at any age. So look, until next time, we know that you're busy moms and we're busy moms. So we're out. <laughs>